Andy, can you believe we've almost hit 700 episodes of The Next Reel? I know, it's crazy. And with all the other episodes in our family of podcasts, we are well over 1,200 episodes of movie conversation. It's really pretty amazing that we've gotten to have these in-depth movie chats every week for over a decade now. And we couldn't have done it without our loyal community of film fans. Their support over the years has meant so much. For sure. That reminds me, we should give the merch store a shout out. Buying shirts from thenextreel.com slash merch is a great way listeners can continue to support the show. Plus, they get to sport our great designs. Absolutely. I think sometimes folks forget we have a variety of shirts, mugs, phone cases, and more available. In fact, a great place to start is with a shirt sporting the Next Reel's logo. We also have that classic Fast Times Spicoli Surf School tee, or the weirdly popular Rusty's European Tour shirt. The one from National Foods European Vacation. Why is that so popular? <laughs> Search me, but we have sold a ridiculous number of those. I guess there are a lot of Rusties taking trips to Europe? We're always adding new designs based on movies we've covered, like our brand new design for a streetcar named Desire, featuring a streetcar named Desire. So if you want to rep your love of TNR and films, head to thenextreel.com slash merch. Every purchase helps us continue to have these weekly in-depth conversations. So visit thenextreel.com slash merch today. And as always, thanks for listening and being a part of the Next Real community. We've got lots more great movie chats coming your way. It is hard to believe that we have been having in-depth weekly conversations about movies since 2011. So many great movies, so many great conversations. But it's a lot of work. Producing this show week after week does require a lot behind the scenes. If you'd like to help support our efforts, one easy way is by using our Originals page when shopping for books and movies that we've covered. Your purchases made through our links give us a small commission at no extra cost to you and allow us to keep having these great discussions. We had some great films in Season 8 that started their lives as books or plays, and you can find all of them on our Originals page at thenextreel.com slash originals. That's the site where listeners can find links to purchase all the source material behind the adapted films we covered from season one up through our current season. For part of season eight, we had a series celebrating the 50th anniversary of films from 1968. We talked about 2001 and 2010 for our Odyssey series, both adapted from Arthur C. Clarke's novels. Man, the second one was so much better than the first, right? Don't you even get me started. <sighs> Need I bring up Under the Cherry Moon again? Yes, also so much better. <laughs> wait, wait, no, that's not what I... <sighs> Planet of the Apes kicked off its series based on the novel by Pierre Boulet. We covered Danger Diabolic and The Detective, adapted from novels for our 1968 crime films. Wait, wasn't that The Detective the prequel to Die Hard? They were both written by Roderick Thorpe, and yes, it's the same character in the books. I can't believe they even asked Sinatra if he'd be in Die Hard. That would have been yeah. weird. <laughs> Uh, Once Upon a Time in America was part of our Leone Once Upon a Time trilogy, adapted from Harry Gray's novel. And we looked at 1968 Best Picture nominees The Lion in Winter, Rachel Rachel, Romeo and Juliet, and Oliver! We also had an Ingrid Bergman series with adaptations like Spellbound, For Whom the Bell Tolls, Murder on the Orient Express, and Gaslight. We haven't talked about Gaslight. Stop gaslighting me! <laughs> Dive deeper into these books and more adapted films at thenextreel.com slash originals. Every purchase supports the podcast. Get the full list of adaptations that we've covered on all the Next Real family of podcasts and start your next read today at thenextreel.com slash originals.
This is The Next Reel, everybody. I'm Pete Wright, and that there is Andy Nelson. Hey, hey, hey. And we spoil movies. Tonight on the show, it's Peter Hyam's chance to wow us with part two of the Odyssey series. It's 2010, the year we make contact. How are you going to convince your people to allow Americans to go on the flight? We are going to get there first, and you have the knowledge to make the trip work. Dr. Arlov has encountered some strange data coming from Europa. I will send Max down with a pod. I wouldn't do that. Oh, really? If you want to send a pod down there, send an unmanned one. Hey, a piece of pie. Cake. Piece of cake. <laughs> Listen for a minute. We've got to get out of here. I can't do all of these things with no reason. I can't dis- Forget reason. There's no time to be reasonable. Take a deep breath, Andy. Do you remember last week? Do you want to talk about it? Review it? Um, uh, no. <laughs> oh, wait, let me ask it again. Do you want to pretend like it never happened? That's where I am right now. Okay. All right. All right. Beautiful, <laughs> sweet, sweet denial. Mm. Yep. So we are doing the follow-up. This one is made so much better because of uh, Roy Scheider. We love Roy Scheider. I, it, we learn a lot. Uh, this movie fills in a lot of backstory. It has so much more talking in it. Uh, it, it, it's a much more uh, sort of traditionally narrative film and, um, uh, and and clips along at a nice pace. There are some great uh, little bits of politics in it. We get a taste of the sweet, sweet n- nostalgia of the Cold War and, uh, and, and the USSR and the United States are space buddies in this movie. How did it hit you? Did it, was it an admirable follow-up to your vaunted 2001 this actually, I had forgotten the uh, a lot of of this movie, but this was a movie that I actually uh, I don't think I saw in theaters, but certainly one that I saw a lot when I was younger because um, we had HBO, my uncle had HBO. It was just something that was on, and I like the scenes involving walking through space, like when John Lithgow was freaking out and all of that sort of stuff. I was like, it was burned into my brain. And I'm like, Oh, I so yes, familiar. of course these. Yeah. Yes. And I knew they're from it, but like watching it again, it just like totally hit me. I'm like, Oh gosh, this, this, these have always stuck with me, those scenes. Um, and then other weird things have always stuck with me. Like the random swimming pool with dolphins in it. That has always stuck oh, with me. Oh, totally. I love what that a part. Weird and you know, thing. I fashioned like for years after I saw this movie when I would doodle my future house and in some cases my underground lair, uh, it always had floors of water just with filled with dolphins and sometimes sharks. <laughs> un, uh, not together and you would just walk on pathways like in the kitchen there was a pathway or glass floors and it was all dolphins. And then eventually it turned to trampolines, as things do. So, but enough about me. <laughs> so, uh, you know, things like that, the the birth of the new son at the end, there were a lot of things that I remembered. And there were a lot of things that I didn't remember. Watching it again after uh, quite a long time, I mean, it was probably the mid 80s, uh, you know, some several years after it came out that I um, was in that period where I was watching it a lot. Um, I just, I haven't seen it since then. And I had kind of forgotten it. Um, coming back to it now, um, fresh after 2001, it, I have to go back to, um, there was a David Letterman episode where he had Tom Hanks on it. And you know how I feel about Tom Hanks. I love Tom Hanks. Yeah. Um, and, and 2001 happens to be Tom Hanks's favorite film. 
And <laughs> oh God, it's so clear to me now. And I'm not saying any of this because I love Tom Hanks uh, or mm-hmm. because he loves 2001. Like there's nothing there. It's just all happenstance. But David Letterman, they were talking about 2001, his favorite movie, why he liked it and all that. And, and, and David Letterman said, well, what did you think of 2010? And Tom Hanks said, I think Peter Hyam's legs should be broken. <laughs> and, and I couldn't help but feel that way after watching it again. So that's kind of where serious? I am with Are you 2010. Serious? Oh, yeah. man, Andy. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear you say that. I, you know, not because this is a great film, but I don't think Peter Hyam's legs need to be broken. I, I think that this well, film. That might be extreme. Do you think I don't? I don't urge anybody to actually go break Peter Hyams' legs. <laughs> I feel like you know, in the, our current political climate, leg breaking is not something you wish upon somebody lightly. You're uh, right, exactly. It, you know, I, I, I feel like you know. We talked last week. I am much more of a Clarkian fan of the series than I am a Kubrickian fan, and so Kubrick's in, entry into the series doesn't define the whole series for me. And so in that way, when I approached 2010, even though it's not lockstep with the book, it, it channels much more the the Clark contribution to the narrative, right? The way the story moves, the way the action moves, the way the the sort of the the politics play out, it feels much more like the book. So to me, the adaptations um, you know, the adaptation of 2010 is weirdly, ironically, maybe given the fervor over 2001, a better adaptation than than 2001 was from book to screen. And because I'm such a fan of the books, um, I, I, that that holds a lot of water for me. Well, it's interesting because what that makes me think of is last week when you talked about the book and how you had asked if it had been kind of a, just a, a real straightforward uh, sci-fi story and, and it didn't necessarily have some of the more meditative qualities and stuff. If if it would have perhaps been a stronger film or a better film, I can't remember exactly the, your verbiage, but you were just wondering kind of comparatively, um, would that sure. have what would that have done? And and I said, you know, it, it probably still would have been an enjoyable film, but I don't know if it would have um, held up over time as well as 2001 has. Um, I feel like this film is more in line with that. Uh, you know, it's, it's just kind of a very kind of straightforward sci-fi story. And I end up finding it kind of, you know, flat and, and uninteresting. And and it's unfortunate that it is paired up with 2001 um, in my eyes because it, it it makes it seem that much more diminutive when you put them side by side. Um, I feel that 2001 actually is a solid adaptation of Clark's work. I feel I mean, I've read the book and I've seen the movie and I feel like it's there. Yes, there are changes, but I don't think they're drastic ones that that changed the story that much um and it's interesting that when clark came back to write 2010 he wrote it as a sequel to the film not his own book um i find that kind of an interesting mind frame for him to to take and so coming into this uh this film i just i i feel like you know okay if this is if this is a stronger adaptation of clark's direct work 
then maybe I'm less interested in going and actually finishing this series because I, I'm not sure I'm that thrilled by Clark. Man, that that and that's where we, you know, where where we differ. I'm I'm just much more of a fan of of Clark and of that ilk. And I think that, uh, you know, 2001, uh, I, I think it's really interesting your point about him writing essentially an adaptation of or a sequel to the film uh, and, and not the movie. I've, I've never seen it that way. Uh, you know, it fills in a lot of holes that maybe he wouldn't have had to fill in had the second, you know, had he had never intended on, you know, approaching the, the first book that way. But, um, well, but I'm not sure it. what the, I'm not sure what the direct, um, uh, change was, but I'm guessing it obviously wasn't, you know, the star child showing up, destroying all of the missiles around the world and all that sort of stuff, kind of the end of the nuclear right. um, thing. I, that, that kind of um, change I think is yeah. what was probably the reference. But I, I think that, you know, what you're getting at is the, you know, is the approach of voice. And I think Peter Hyams captured Clark's voice uh, in a, in a much more natural way to my ear. Uh, then and, and Kubrick has such a strong narrative voice himself, uh, and, and that is a difference between these two directors, right? That very little of Clark shines through Kubrick's work, and every ounce of Clark shines through Hyam's work. And I think that is just you know to your point about it being, um, you know, a little bit more of a workaday production um, or adaptation. I think that's where we see it. It is the the sort of lack of of such an independent strong. Uh, vision from Hyams that allows the book to shine through. Yeah, maybe, maybe, but it doesn't help the film. The film just really suffers. I feel like it's a, it's kind of a not exciting uh, vision. And I, I really was kind of surprised at the direction it took. And uh, I, I don't know. I, I, I shouldn't say that. I do think it actually piqued my curiosity to see where it's going from here more than it made me interested in this film itself. Like now I'm like, oh, okay. So now what's this whole thing with Europa? Like, you know, why is Europa all of a sudden hugely important to the aliens? So much so that they like pretty much ban humans from going there at the end of this film. It was a kind of a very right. strange ending to me. I'm like, I, what what's going on with Europa? I think um, that's so interesting after our conversation last week. Maybe it's because that was such an open-ended kind of interpretation of the movie that you can go in so many different directions. But for me, this one is very clear. Like, this is the aliens who, um, you know, are interpreting or who've said, you know, we're going to wait for the next intelligent life. You know, you can't come here because we're doing <laughs> we're going to start over. You didn't do it right. Uh, and, and it ends up being much more of a statement on, um, you know, as we mentioned, this Cold War. Uh, you think that's what they were saying? That's what I was getting out of it. That's what I, how I walked away. So they're they're saying, "Oh nope, you screwed up. You're not good enough. Do over. Uh, hmm. You don't like it. You don't like it because you don't like me right now, or you don't like the movie. No, I I think there may be a little of both. It doesn't make that much <laughs> sense. Like no, no, no. I I I really just don't think it makes a lot of sense. Like what's the whole thing with? Um, why is Dave, is he the star child? I mean, I guess he is, but he also kind of seems like he's this ghost and it was just, it was strange the way that, that Dave came in and out and, and when things would happen randomly, like when the Russian is going down to, uh, to the, the two kilometer long monolith and then gets destroyed and all of a sudden it shoots this, this little starry, you know, star man dot 
down to earth to send a message to Dave's wife. And I'm like, mm-hmm. what? That was weird. Why did he need to kill a Russian to go do this? You know, there were little things like that that happened. And I'm like, it just, it just, you know, it seemed illogical. Like I, I couldn't figure out what the point of things happening or, 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 you know, how we were getting from A to B to C. Yeah. And you know what? I don't disagree with that. I don't disagree with what you're with, with any of those points that there were some issues there, uh, that are a little bit confusing. And because it's such a straightforward kind of narrative film, when those things are confusing, you, you have to question the narrative and not your interpretation of it, which is the gift of 2001. If you love 2001, you get to go in all kinds of crazy directions in your own mind because it gives you the, the leaves the door open. This movie, when it's confusing, man, it's just confusing. Well, in 2001, I mean, despite having all those different things, the ways you can read it stuff, it still is fairly straightforward. You know, we, we have a good sense of things and, and how they're happening. Um, and I think we get a better read on it than we do in this film. Like the, the elements happening with Dave in this film. Uh, like I just I, I don't have a good handle on it and I've never read the book so I, I don't know if it was just a poor translation or if it just wasn't written very well from, to, from the beginning but I feel like I get what's happening at the end of 2001 uh, yeah I I'm, I would agree to disagree with you there uh, because I think the movie for you know for viewers who are not students of it find it rather impenetrable and and so it, it's not easy you you really have to work at it and this movie it's easy and is unsatisfying in a lot of key ways i don't know if it's easy <laughs> i just think it's confusing i think it's it's poor construction okay like what's explain it to me what's going on with dave dave is generally the voice of the aliens and they are making a judgment on humanity's uh, relationship with itself and if we're ever going to go anywhere beyond our own petty disputes you know we're gonna have to get over ourselves and we're gonna have to find peace and we're not moving in that direction therefore we're gonna start someplace else we're gonna start cultivating intelligent life elsewhere that the war between the cold war uh, the anxieties that exist between the ussr and the united states are not moving humanity any closer to the intelligent life that the aliens have always been seeking and so they're going to go cultivate it on another planet like they did on earth at the beginning of 2001. That's always how I've seen 2010. Uh, and, uh, and, and that the general theme sort of works with works for me. So at the end of it, Europa is essentially a primitive earth and yeah. soon we'll have monkeys that will touch the monolith and evolve. Yeah. Because that's always been the intention of the, of the alien species, right? Is to sure. cultivate intelligent life and, Right. celebrate intelligent life right now it's there for the amoebas swimming around <laughs> yeah it's it's just waiting just right. waiting it's it is it's the sentinel right it's it's there sure. no, no, no. to alert the aliens when when intelligent life is ready it's a it's a struggle and i i think on top of that the film is bogged down with some really tedious exposition um coming both from uh, Roy Scheider as he's sending messages to his family and explains uh, very in great detail what is happening so that the audience gets it. Um, and then at the end as well, I just felt like, man, this exposition at the end was just, it was rough kind of explaining all of the, the stuff about, uh, you know, I, I can't remember even, but just like the process of life taking place and whatever. It just, mm-hmm. it felt like, um, let's explain this. And it just, it hurt. 
How much do you think that the production of this movie, though, aimed to address some of the criticisms of the first? Like, is this a studio, uh, you know, coming back and saying, okay, if we're going to do this, we've got to do it in a way that doesn't cause a large percentage of our audience to feel baffled and a small percentage of our most vocal audience to stand up and walk out of the theater? I don't know. I mean, 18 years, 18 years later to do the sequel. I don't know. Yeah. You know, it's hard. It's hard to gauge how much how much that was an effect or not. Yeah, maybe. I I just I I figure that that's what this movie feels like to me. It feels like back to this conversation of voice. It feels very much like this movie exists to address the criticisms of of Kubrick's film. And and because it doesn't feel like it's in the same universe, like in the 2001 cinematic universe. Right. It it doesn't feel like it's in the same place. One of these movies doesn't belong in its own series. And, you know, (laughs) depending on the time of day that you know who you are, it could be either one. Um, It also feels like this movie is very much trying to capitalize on the style and tone, the visual style and tone of some other movies, you know, and that in the same sort of 80s. Um, science fiction era, right? It doesn't. It doesn't feel like it strikes out on its own in any sort of particularly interesting visual, um, you know, style. We've talked about Peter Hyams, I think, just with Outland before, mm-hmm. uh, and he's he's a director who's done a number of science fiction films, um, but also has dabbled in some other sorts of things like the Presidio and Running Scared and stuff. Um, I, I, I feel like, uh, honestly, I felt like he had a better handle on his kind of vision of the film in Outland than totally. he did in 2010. And that very well could have been, um, you know, I mean, he was a fan of Kubrick. And coming in on this project, um, he might have been, you know, trying to make his own film, but also feeling, you know, scrutinized because he knew what he was following maybe i i think that's probably true i mean just in terms of just addressing the humanity that goes into you know people coming together making these things but uh, to this question of visual style i think he was he he felt much more just straight up original uh in outland and and this feels reductive as uh, you know by comparison yeah it's a real shame i i, I know that you know uh, when Clark had written this, um, the book, which I mean, he had waited a long time anyway. I mean, this the novel came out in '82, and Hyams had reached out to him and Kubrick to uh, say he was interested in making a film of it and to get their blessing. Um, and it sounds like they both did, but I mean, he said, I had a long conversation with Stanley and told him what was going on. If it met with his approval, I would do the film. And if it didn't, I wouldn't. I certainly would not have thought of doing the film if I had not gotten the blessing of Kubrick. He's one of my idols, simply one of the greatest talents that's ever walked the earth. He is more or less, he more or less said, sure, go do it. I don't care. And (laughs) one, I think that speaks (laughs) to Kubrick and his, his apathy about things like this. Um, but also, I think it, it, it speaks to Hyam's place coming into a project like this where, you know, like I said, he's, you know, he's following the footsteps of one of his own idols. And here he is trying to do his own thing, but still trying to kind of create something that feels very um, uh, Kubrickian to a certain extent and yeah. Clarkian. 
Um, you know, he certainly worked a lot with Clark in the developing of the script. Um, and Clark's uh, even in the movie for crying out loud. Yeah, right. I mean, it was quite a bit of work. I mean, and and Clark worked with Kubrick quite a bit on that one on uh, as well. Um, so I think Clark was very much involved um, because he really wanted to see these brought to the screen in the best ways possible. Um, but uh, in, I mean, maybe you're right. There, there are going to be fans of this one and there are going to be people who prefer the other one. Before we move on, Andy, I, I want to get your thoughts on this whole relationship between humanity and AI. Uh, because we have this new character, Chandra, Dr. Chandra, and uh, he's we see him initially working with Sal 9000, uh, and uh, later he you know goes with the crew uh, to help rehabilitate Hal 9000 uh, on the Discovery and find out what has happened. And so all wrapped up in this story uh, of Dr. Chandra and these computers is this, you know, question of trust, trust between humanity and artificial intelligence. What is artificial intelligence? What kind of leeway do we have to give artificial intelligence to to work with it more effectively and have help it work for us? Um, how did that that particular storyline hit you? It's it's frustrating because I, I like the concept of this of this dance between the uh, the AI and and what it can do and uh, how it interacts when it gets possibly uh, confusing messages from people and and I, I I think that's actually pretty interesting. What I feel like it does is I feel like maybe to a certain extent it's diminishing some of the power that 2001 has with uh, Hal as an antagonist. Um, something that I think, you know, Star Wars fans complain about with the prequels, how they kind of diminish uh, Darth Vader as as this great villain, because all of a sudden now he's this this troubled kid and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. And, and even more recently, how deeply do we know need to go into the story of Han Solo? Do we really need to see the Kessel Run? Do we need to see, you know, how he gets the Millennium Falcon? I mean, these are these the, the questions I think 2010 exemplifies exactly that point. Does it fill in too much that we didn't need? Yeah. And it 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 kind of all of a sudden now makes Hal a good guy. You know, it 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 sets up this situation where um they basically say, oh, well, Hal, the real problem wasn't Hal in the last film. It was Floyd because Floyd created this situation within Hal where he gave him information but told him to keep it from the people or whatever the specifics were. And Hal um, couldn't, you know, couldn't kind of justify all of that. And so that's what led to it saying, well, then I have to kill these people to continue this mission. Um. And now Chandra's kind of figured all that out. And so at the end of the film, they create this situation where they tell, they tell Hal the truth about everything. And, and Hal understands that I, I'm going to die because I'm doing this for you. And Hal does. And so now Hal is, is you know, the greatest good guy. And I don't know. I really struggled with that transformation. I didn't need Hal to be the character that transformed in this film, you know. Which is such an interesting, you know, transformation, right? When we come off of 2001 and some of the most interesting analysis concludes that the most human character in that movie is Hal, the computer. Here we have Hal, the computer, the aforementioned most human character in the previous film, now 
becomes the character of transformation, and we don't like it. Transformation is a particularly human characteristic, so why shouldn't that be applied to this artificial intelligence that we've already established is a vessel of humanity? Absolutely. I I generally there are other film examples where a you know there's a character who's a bad character in one film who might turn in the next film and become a good character and I think it can be a great strength. You know, it can make uh, interesting twists and it can it can play nicely with with some of those. In this particular case though, I I don't know. I just Maybe it was because I just didn't feel like it was handled in a way where it really had any power. Like, I didn't feel like it, it had the heft that it really would have needed to uh, to bring that forward. And, and and as much as it pains me to say it, I feel like Roy Scheider was, was a weakness for this film. I love Roy Scheider. I think he is such a great actor in the 70s. And in this film, I just, I felt like he did not carry the sense of Floyd Haywood that I had from the first film. And he just, he seemed a little too gung ho at times. And he just, I don't know. It just didn't even seem like the same character. And it really frustrated me. And I I felt like dealing with the situation as far as his, his issues with kind of creating this and, and everything with Hal and stuff. I just felt like that part of the story was, was, was uh, frustratingly weak, and I just didn't think Roy Scheider was able to carry it forward in a way that worked for me. I, I admit, I uh, agree with you, and I feel like this film was kind of a turn for him, um, and and it was kind of a tight turn, because the film he did immediately before this, I quite liked, which was uh, Blue Thunder, right, 1983, and then this happened, and all I could think about after watching this movie and his performance in it is, wow, this really cemented his position as captain of the Sequest DSV. Like, it, <laughs> it just kind of, you could see where things turned for Roy Scheider. And, you know, coming off of such a strong series of films through the 70s and, and early, early 80s, um, it, it was kind of sad to see. I still like him in this movie. I, I do, uh, but I feel it. I feel that some Something is changing in the way he is approaching this part uh, that that doesn't do justice to what I loved so much about his role in Marathon Man. You know, I mean, it's just not the same. It's not the same. Yeah, it's frustrating. Well, what would you think of uh, Lithgow, who looks uh, weirdly young in this movie? (laughs) Because he was younger, Pete. I guess he was. I guess, (laughs) you know, we age. (laughs) There is that thing. I generally like John Lithgow. I think he's great. I think um, he brought uh, a nice sense to this. And, you know, I love just the spacewalk. I just love all the stuff with him. It is frustrating for me, though, because I'm like, why are they bringing these people? Do they not do space training first before they send them up, like to at least give them a sense of things? And I know there was a rush. I know all of that sort of sense of just grabbing these people and stuff. But I felt like, oh, God, wasn't there somebody else who could handle this, these same elements who might at least have had some <laughs> sense of the space training? Because my goodness, he's like, he is terrible. Uh, and I, I was really kind of struggling at times. Like this is, they're sending these people into space and it's just, I don't know. Andy, it was rough for me. We started having this conversation with this movie. We have been having this conversation as filmgoers forever. 
and it's never going to end. It's whether it's, uh, you know, John Lithgow and all his ilk and and Bob Balaban or it's Robert Duvall and Morgan Freeman and, you know, uh, Bruce Willis. Like they're, they're going to be space cowboys <laughs> who are not trained to go to space. Hey, they train those boys. <laughs> you can't even remember, say it with a straight I, uh, <laughs> There was a great training montage, Pete. <laughs> You need a montage. <laughs> I know that they got the training they needed. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Helen Mirren, uh, Tanya Kirbuk. She's a great Russian. She really is. Has she, she played she a Russian at any other point in her career? I know. She's so good as a I Russian. Know. I thought she was fantastic. <laughs> uh, she, she was actually, I think, the cast highlight for me in the film because I just felt like she carried that role as this commander on the Russian uh, on the Russian uh, ship. And I felt like there were some some points where, you know, she did have to weigh her options. You know, do we do what the Americans say or do we do what the people back on Earth say? It was interesting because as uh, an American with some some knowledge of history in, uh, you know, the, this the era, having, you know, lived through it, it was strange to watch this movie and like her so much that I found myself really rooting for the Soviets. <laughs> I don't think that was their intention. I think this was much more of a teamwork movie, but I kind of hope they'd just leave them behind. <laughs> right. <laughs> Uh, uh, and finally, uh, you know, for me, the, the uh, you know, Bob Balaban, we've already mentioned Dr. Chandra. I, I, I thought Bob Balaban was a good nerd. Well, it it felt like, yes, it, it, he is a good nerd, but it felt like, you know, a continuation of his character from Close Encounters or something like he was so stereotyped in this role <laughs> in that period of time that it's like, of course, they're going to put Bob Balaban in as this, right. <laughs> as this guy. <laughs> it was he's super familiar. He, yeah. he is like coming home. Uh, right, movie, right, right. So totally get that. Um, it, we have Kier DeLeo as Dave Bowman again, and uh, Douglas Rain as Hal 9000 again. Um, and fine for Kier DeLeo, he's fine uh, for what they use his character for, but uh, mostly Douglas Rain, uh, I think, is for me another highlight uh, his performance as Hal. Well, it just, it just goes to show how valuable a voice can be um, just portraying a machine. I think. Um, people saw that in her when that film came out. And I definitely think that it's clear with uh, what Douglas Rain has been doing for Hal in these two films. Because, yeah, I, I think that it carries the the heft that that he needs to for a machine, a voice in the machine. Yeah, I think so, too. And, I, you know, for me, the the, tran the human transformation, if I didn't make that clear, I like it more than you did. Uh, I actually thought that was a, a really nice touch. And so um, I, I think that was the hard thing to overcome here. And his final conversation with Bob Balaban, um, you know, with Dr. Chandra is, you, you know, when he pressures Dr. Chandra to tell the truth, you know, tell yeah. me what you need to tell me. That exchange I found very powerful and palpable, and I I was rooting for Dr. Chandra to tell the truth, to say something honest for once, not to fall into the trap of bureaucratic lies again, uh, because they're scared of the technology that they created. Ultimately, this is a story of redemption for the technology, that in fact this 
this maniacal AI, it turns out it, it is only as good or bad as the instructions we give it, right? That's the lesson. It's benign. It, it will support us when we need it to support us uh, if we give it the right signals. And uh, I actually find that is one of the great stories of science fiction because so many stories of science fiction fail that test, right? They're, they just portray artificial intelligence as evil. The example of her is great because it's not a maniacal, devastating evil, but it, it is a social evil, right? The circle, it's a social evil that turns into a maniacal evil. Uh, and so... This is a movie where, you know, at the end we get to see, in fact, we're going to celebrate humanity working with the technology in a way that's that is ultimately positive. And it is nice that that message is there. I just I, I couldn't help but feeling that uh, I wanted a stronger connection um, from Scheider for his part of all of that. Yeah, boy, he didn't get that at all. No, no. Uh, it, it, partnering, I will say partnering, but not directly with Douglas Rain as Hal, is Candace Bergen as the Sal 9000. Did you know that? I had no idea. Because she's not credited as that in the <laughs> no. film. No. Credited as <laughs> Olga Malsnerd. <laughs> I don't know. Is that a, some sort of a... Uh, what is Malsnerd? Can can we rearrange the letters on that? It's, it's, oh, here you go. It's a combination of the surname of her husband, director Louis Mall. Oh, yeah. And that of Mortimer Snurd, one of uh, her father, Edgar Bergen's famous puppet characters. Oh, how funny. Well there done, Candace. That was great. I'm so excited that she is coming back as Murphy Brown. This was a great, it was a great part for her. <laughs> with, with like three lines. I mean, she I, didn't have a lot to do. She didn't have a lot to do. But I, I like her voice. And I like, again, that is another great conversation with Bob, uh, Dr. Chandra and Sal 9000 that we have him starting to probe and ask the questions of this AI. Is it, you know, he, what's going to stress you out? You know, what's going to push you over the edge? I thought that was another great conversation. So. Well, and just and it's, it's it was interesting seeing where the AI is going at this point, hearing them say, will I dream? Yes. You know, that's kind of interesting. Totally. But it also, uh, you know, makes me think that they're turning into little Terminators. <laughs> right. right. Okay. All right. You win this round. We talked about Peter Hyams as director. He pretty much did everything on this movie. He also was behind the camera. Yeah, man. I had no idea. Or maybe I did. I mean, I feel like when we talked about Outland, we might have kind of mentioned stuff like this as to kind of the fact that uh, this man is one of these people who does a lot of things. Um, although I don't remember on Outland what he did. I know he wrote and directed it, um, but uh, no, Stephen Goldblatt actually was the shooter on that one. So, right. uh, and he didn't produce that one. So, um, yeah, I don't, I, I don't know. I was just surprised that he was behind so much, and I didn't find the cinematography really anything special. So it made me wonder if that is the direction he should have gone. This, uh, so the effects on this film were shot at 65 uh, millimeter and the rest of the film in 35 yeah so that's the that is what i'm calling the original imax shuffle i did not notice that it changed i guess my movie was cropped but i i didn't notice the cutoff parts i yeah i wasn't i didn't realize that this was a thing before i watched it on uh, amazon streaming so i wasn't particularly paying attention to it i mean most of the effects shots were space so i think if the if something was cut off on the sides, I might not have noticed just because yeah, right. it was so black anyway. Um, 
but uh, it's yeah, it's kind of an interesting little thing to uh, to have uh, pointed out. And so yeah, yeah, but yeah, if it's cropped, obviously you're not going to notice that. I I want to talk a little bit about Kubrick taking on the role of Hannibal in his March to the Sea. Um, Kubrick <laughs> burned everything down at the end of this movie or at the end of 2001. He is notorious for his films of getting rid of things that he doesn't want people to use that, that he came up with for his films. I believe that there is a story of a lens that he came up with um, for Barry Lyndon that they used to shoot the scenes by candlelight that could take that just such a small amount of light and still create the image. And uh, after the film was done, got rid of those lenses <laughs> and same thing here you know the the model that i assume would be in the smithsonian or something now um if or on display in some place uh would be uh, a gorgeous thing to look at the the enormous um gosh i think it was a 50 foot model it was 50 of the discovery long, one yeah, yeah. He had that destroyed. He had all the designs uh, destroyed. Like everything was gone, and so the the model makers had to uh, blow up um, images, frames from a seventy millimeter print of two thousand one to look at the Discovery One, so that they could create their own version of it. And and I would say I, it's very effective for me. This is an area where the film is uh, has shows a lot of strength. I thought the effects, the models, the space stuff all looked really good and was very engaging. I I I agree. I think they did a great job with the effects. The only time that I really struggled with it was when the humans were interacting up close with uh, the discovery. I felt like the model. Um, seemed way too small. Like when they were on the different parts of it, I was like, gosh, it seems like that, like when they're on the bulb end of it, where the, yes. you know, the pods go in and stuff, um, the curve of the edge seemed way too tight for, for how it looked compared to them. Like if they were actually up on it like that, it felt like it should have been a much larger curve. Um, and so I, I kind of struggled with some of that, um, but largely, I mean, Sid Mead, he came in to design some of the elements for the film. I've always found him fascinating in some of the projects that he's done. They, so everything here looked great. I like the design of the Leonov, um, the way that they did the effects to create Jupiter. It's like that early CGI really looked nice. And then uh, a company, Digital Produc Productions, they uh, used um, some data from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory to create the turbulent um, atmosphere of Jupiter that was uh, uh, CGI there. And I guess this was uh, what they say. It's one of the first instances of what the studio would later refer to as digital scene simulation, a concept they would take to the next level with The Last Starfighter, which uh, also came out this year. It's very cool. But you also have to talk about how they did the lighting. I It was interesting. And this was something I... I noticed a few times I was paying attention to the way that the ships were lit, because obviously if a ship is lit in space, it's just coming from one giant light bulb, right? Very hard sun. light, right. <laughs> right. Right. That's it. And sometimes I was looking at it. I'm like, ah, I, I, I don't feel like it was quite as effective as it should have been. But I don't know if that was just the way that things were cut or what. But um, 
what they were doing to kind of create this effect, instead of doing blue screen, they were concerned. And this certainly happens when you're shooting blue screen. Sometimes you'll have a, a spill where the image, the edges of it will have kind of a little blue halo around it and it can be hard to get rid of. Right. So what they did is this process called front light backlight filming. Um, and so what they did is they would film the model um, with like the, the um, black behind it. Um, lit. And so you'd see this model kind of um, in this black environment. Then they would put a white background behind it and they would film it again with, and it would all be, it would have to be with like a, a motion track system so that all the motions were exactly the same. And what that did is by shooting it on the white, it allows the, um, it creates basically a traveling mat that then they can use to kind of cut it out and, and put it in the right environment. And, uh, it, it's it's really interesting, but because they're doing it this way, it actually requires them to film everything twice. So yeah. it took a lot more time to actually get it done. It it met my sense memory of it. You know, sometimes you watch these movies and and you, that you saw when you were a kid, and the effects are what really give it away. And in this case, I found the effects absolutely lived up to what I remembered, and uh, it it was it was great. I, I did think it was funny. Uh, in the first film, you have that fantastic scene with the pen floating. And yeah. they, you, to, to achieve that effect in the first film, what I never realized, and it's so obvious when I realized it, they had the pen stuck to a piece of glass. And then they just had the glass, like people on either side, moving the glass in front of the lens. And it made it look like the pen was floating. And then when the, the flight attendant comes up, she just like grabs the pen right off the glass and puts it in, in Floyd's pocket. Brilliant. And uh, what they tried to do in this film, because they had another scene, which made no sense to me. And I was very frustrated by the scene because <laughs> there's gravity everywhere in the ship except for these pens. <laughs> really, really nonsensical and frustrating. But that aside, they were trying to do the same trick with this. And, and Roy Scheider, he was trying to kind of use these pens to kind of show how these ships can connect with each other. And... Um, and, and so he is basically trying to put these pens in place and he's trying to stick them to the glass and, and then the, the glass is moving and stuff, but it never looked right. It looked like he was just kind of sticking it to it. You know, I think there's a difference with taking it off and putting it on and it right. just wouldn't, wouldn't work. So what they actually did is he shot that entire scene with no pens and then they actually came in and they did use blue screen to film these floating pens that they then later inserted it seems like such a difficult way to make it work but, a difficult uh, way to make yeah. it work and overkill for a scene that didn't need all of that overkill exactly i i feel like they had to add that scene just because they wanted to have floating pens yep. like the first film did yep yeah it felt like a bridge too far let's yeah. talk just a little bit about uh the music david shire ended up doing the music after tony banks uh who's the keyboardist for genesis had his music rejected, and I couldn't help but think about the uh, hullabaloo with the music in the last movie. Do you think they actually told Tony Banks when they fired him, or they made him just come to the premiere to find out? I saw that note that you wrote, and it made me chuckle. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it almost just seemed it would have been perfect for Peter Hyams to do that. Right, just... right. Continuing in Kubrick's uh, path. This is right. It's the walk of shame that you have to do at, after the premiere when you find out your work has been totally ignored. Oh, what did you think dear. of the score? Music is obviously very important in these movies. What did you think of David Shire's work? 
it's really flat. Uh, you know, I think that what we talked about last week is the way that Kubrick found these pieces. They ended up kind of creating this environment, and they and they fit without feeling like they had to be composed for it. Um, Shire, uh, you know, he's a composer that I, I certainly like, but the film here, uh, I mean, I, I like that he did the synthesizer music. It it kind of has that futuristic feel. But it feels like it's kind of composed for the film and it ends up just not doing anything for me. And it was so frustrating also as a side point um, to the editing and how the how the editor and perhaps the director treated the music when they would cut uh, toward the end of the film, when they were cutting back and forth between the monolith and the people and stuff. They would have the music for the monolith playing with the monolith. And then as soon as they cut, it's like they cut the music too. And so it's just like these hard cuts with this music. It's, it's really difficult to deal with. It's like when the music crosses over too much into the world that you're watching. And in Solo, do you remember the like the like action posters that join the Empire posters where the Imperial March is playing in these animated posters? <laughs> like, are you telling me <laughs> that John Williams wrote the music to the the promotional posters in this movie that's what it kind of felt like in this in, in 2000 for me it felt like when sir lancelot in uh, monty python and the holy grail is running toward the castle <laughs> and then you keep cutting to the guards and there's no it, like there's this as he's running and then it cuts to the guards looking and it's just complete silence as they watch and then it cuts back to him and it's just like that cutting yeah that's right that's yeah that's right uh okay A much better film right <laughs> All right. Uh, how did it do? Uh, in, <laughs> I, I hesitate to ask you to do this report on this movie, but how did it do at award season? Like the first one. I mean, this is one of those films that does get recognized for uh, for certain categories. It did have one win and eight other nominations at the Oscars. It was nominated for five awards. Didn't win any. It uh, it was nominated for art direction, set decoration, costume design sound and makeup those all lost to amadeus and then it was also nominated for best visual effects but it lost to indiana jones and the temple of doom one of our uh, favorites that we've talked about on the show over at the saturn awards the academy of sci-fi fantasy and horror um, it was nominated for best science fiction film but lost to the terminator best costumes but lost to dune and best special effects but lost to gremlins um i i did have to wonder. I mean, Gremlins is fantastic, but I was like, I'm surprised that Gremlins beat out the Terminator. But not surprised about any of those others. No, I'm not really surprised. Yeah. And then at the Hugo Awards, um, it was it, this is where it won. It, it won for Best Dramatic Presentation. It beat out Dune, Ghostbusters, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock, and The Last Starfighter. You know, Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock is the movie that I kept thinking about in the third act. That it it just feels so much. Like we're getting the same that sort of Genesis planet vibe, right? Europa. So, anyway, yeah. Uh, how about uh, how? Uh, what did the budget look like uh, for this one? Peter Hyams' sequel cost twenty eight million to make, which is sixty four point nine million in today's dollars, cheaper than the original by about eight million when comparing the two. The movie opened December seventh, nineteen eighty four, opposite Clint Eastwood's City Heat, and the box office juggernaut Beverly Hills Cop, which we've talked about on the show. And we know how that did at the box office. Uh, that one did top the box office and let this one left this one in the number two spot, a position that it never beat. The movie went on to make $41 million domestically. I couldn't find anything about the international figures for this one, so I just have to go off the domestic. 
That gives the movie a gross in today's dollars of $95 million and an adjusted profit per finished minute of $260,000. It is a huge drop profit-wise for this belated sequel, but it might have done better if I could have just found some international figures. All right, fair enough. I think it's time, Andy, for us to rank it. Let's do it. Head over to flickchart.com slash the next reel. You'll see all the movies we've talked about. Uh, you could go over to Andy's uh, chart and see where it ended up on his or mine and scroll a long way and see where it ended up on mine um, for the, the its predecessor, 2001. Or we could just see. I think this may be a movie where we meet uh, below the middle. I guess we'll see. <laughs> First up, 2010 or Fat City. Fat City, definitely for Fat, me. Fat City, 2010 or Atlantic City? Jeez, <laughs> oh, the city films. The city films. Um, Atlantic City for me, and we've got a Candace Bergen. I'll, I'll say uh, Atlantic City as well. I, I yeah I yeah okay all right. 2010 or Giant? 2010. I'm gonna say Giant. Here we go. <laughs> One, One, two, two three. three. Paper. Scissors. All right. A principled loss. 2010 or Marty? Oh, 2010. Marty. 2010. <laughs> ah. All right, here we go. All right, here we go. One, One two, two, three. Rock. rock. Paper. Thank God. <laughs> Oof. No, 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 Pete. Oh, yeah. You're no, wrong. Andy. No, Andy. 2010 or The Dead Zone? Oh, definitely The Dead Zone. Dead Zone. 2010. Or the Danish girl. Oh, I'm Danish girl. Yeah, Danish girl. 2010 or Outbreak. Ooh. Vicious <laughs> little monkeys. Helicopter. That <laughs> stupid, <laughs> stupid helicopter. <laughs> oh, God. I'm 2010. I'm, I'm still going Outbreak. Are you it's serious? Awfully, it's oh, awfully my goodness. fun still. Goodness. All right, here we go. <laughs> One, two, two three. Scissors. 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 <laughs> 2010 or the hound of the baskervilles 2010 Gosh, that hasn't popped up in ages yes baskervilles. definitely 2010 one, one two, two three, three. scissors all right 2010 or indiana jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull <laughs> okay i would watch indiana jones first i would too <laughs> Well, that puts 2010 at 341 on our chart. Out of? Out of 363. Okay. Pretty low. Pretty low. Pretty low. Gotta, here's the thing. Uh, I, I, have to, I just have to see where 2001 is again. Yeah. So I challenged a lot of those, but I have to tell you, I didn't feel very strongly about any of them except Marty. <laughs> <laughs> So I really didn't feel that great about uh, terribly about any of those. Uh, where did this end on end up on your personal list? My personal chart. This actually went pretty low. It landed at thirty seven oh two out of four thousand six, which is about eight percent. Okay. All right. Well, this ended up at uh, four sixty two out of ten twenty eight on mine. That's about fifty five percent. So it's a it's a middling film for me. I still enjoyed watching it. Brace yourself more than two thousand one, which I found painful. And what's what is what I've learned here that my my grand observation is, as it turns out, I don't like the two thousand one movies. <laughs> <laughs> 
I don't like them very much. And I, I have like my feeling about this movie. Uh, I, I fully went into this movie expecting it to be a five star film. I thought this is this is going to be the grand catharsis where I get to tell the truth about uh, my feeling of the 2001 films that I am one of the people who hates 2001 and I love 2010. And it turns out I don't really feel very strongly about 2010 at all. <laughs> and I probably won't watch it, uh, you know, for the the indefinite future. So there you go. It, it says, according to the algorithm, I should rank this as a three star. I'm not going to do that. That feels too gracious to me. I, it's going to be a two star. And uh, I'm uh, probably not going to give it a heart. Yeah, it, it would be a tough one uh, to give a heart to uh, for me as well. Uh, two from you, one from me. I remembered enjoying this more in my youth and i think it was just because it was kind of a, a space film because of dolphins um, in the stupid pool. dolphins in the swimming dolphins pool, in the pool <laughs> what i wanted <laughs> um watching it again i just i was endlessly frustrated with it um no i don't think peter Hyams' legs necessarily need to be broken but um it, it, it you know if anything i will say what this has done is it's piqued my curiosity again to read the books and I want to go back and and uh, reread 2001 and then I want to read 2010 2061 and 3001 I just want to finish the series yeah. and see if I feel um I like where Clark took it I mean maybe Clark is my problem with 2010 I don't know maybe I'll hate the rest of the series and 2001 is the only one I just don't know but for the films 2001 is the one that um I will forever want to rewatch I am really glad that we did this series, and I hope it was at least something of an interesting conversation, even if it only gives one other person just like me the opportunity to say, yeah, I didn't like 2001 either. Uh, yeah. <laughs> let my life serve as a warning to others. You don't have to sit through it again if you really don't like it. It's okay. There it is. There you go. I, I will say I can breathe at least slightly easier because 2001 is higher than 2010 on our chart. <laughs> <laughs> So I feel like, you know, I had to put in a really valiant fight last week, uh, lost a lot, but I still feel it ended up <laughs> at least <laughs> better right than 2010. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough. So what do we do? Uh, where do we go from here? Oh, Pete. Gorillas and orangutans and chimps. Oh, my. We're uh, going <laughs> to kick off the Planet of the Apes franchise. Well, this is the original starting at the beginning, 1968. Planet of the Apes. Correct. I want people to get confused. Yeah, we're not. This ain't no uh, Wahlberg. And and we're not jumping into any of the remakes. We're only looking at the original five uh, films from the original trilogy. Um, uh, the original trilogy, uh, quintilogy, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> oh man, I didn't even catch it until you caught it. That was brilliant. Yeah, so we're only looking at those five films. We're not going to cover, um, I, I think largely it's because we've talked about several of the uh, the most recent films on our film board Yeah, and just didn't feel it, it made a lot of sense. Well, and neither of us really wanted to talk about the uh, Tim Burton version. Right. So it just didn't make sense. I'm really looking forward to it. It's been a long time since I've, I, I don't think I have ever watched them all in series. I have always watched them just sort of ad hoc and so uh, I'm, I'm actually really excited to sit down and do the whole thing and um, um, you know we'll probably try to do it in a day maybe simultaneously 
Well, it's funny because it is a series that uh, when we were young, there would be, you know, there would be the Star Trek marathon that I don't know, it was like TBS or somebody would do. Yeah. And there was a Planet of the Apes marathon. And I would always sit down and watch the Planet of the Apes marathon and, and go through the. I, honestly, I don't know if I ever sat down and watched all five of them in order, but I certainly would sit down here and there and watch bits and pieces of them. Right. Right. Absolutely. So, God, me too. Yeah. Uh, so, so it very is, excited it is, about that. Yeah, it's it's a fun series, and it'll be um, the next in our uh, glimpse in franchises that kicked off in 1968. So, 50-year franchise, here we come. Outstanding. Well, if you want to hear more of us, but you can't wait until next week's show, you can support us over on patreon.com slash thenextreel, where you can get access to our exclusive members-only weekend show, The Saturday Matinee. We talk about movie news and trailers, plus we go head-to-head in our weekly challenge in which we put together lists of movies related in some way to the movie we're discussing that week. There are all sorts of other goodies, too, if you support us at different levels. Just head over to patreon.com slash thenextreel. You can learn more about us at thenextreel.com, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app, or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at The Next Reel. The Next Reel couldn't happen without the hard work of Stephen Smart, who runs Instagram, Ben Lott running all things over on Twitter, and thanks to Eli Catlin, who graciously allows us to use his song, Ragtime Instrumental, as the theme to the show. You can find out more about Eli on his SoundCloud page. When the movie ends, our conversation begins. Amazon giveth, Andy. As Amazon always doeth. Oh, Amazon. All I have to say is thank you tonight. Uh, <laughs> I I am going I'm going south on mine. Where are you going? I'm going north. You want to go up or down? Oh, why don't I kick it off? All right, go for it. Because hopefully yours is better than mine. <laughs> okay. All right, roll the dice. I've got a five star by Thomas Ryan who says Jupiter's Secret. It, it, this is just an informative little thing. Did you oh. know that Jupiter, the largest planet in the solar system, is the only planet that radiates energy on its own? If you want something to really think about. <laughs> is, that, is that it? That's it. I think that he was excited about this film and uh, now believes that uh, because Jupiter is actually radiating energy on its own, that aliens are there. That is something to think about. It's a conspiracy it is a conspiracy oh, theory. Thank God. I was worried that we weren't going to get a conspiracy tonight. Yeah. Well, okay. Now we have one. Well, I have I have one plus. So I got a little bonus. The first one is clearly a warning, and the second one is actually instructive. Here you go. Number one, watch Kubrick's original 2001. If you thought Kubrick's epic film 2001 was well done or groundbreaking, as many did, you will absolutely hate 2010. This film is a bad Hollywood, quote, sequel to the original Kubrick masterpiece. 2010 has terrible acting by decent actors, poor casting, inferior music composition, and shabby set design. Shameful cash grab by author Arthur C. Clarke. Watch 2001 a few times and see what an artful film Kubrick achieved. Slow, perhaps, but not cheap Hollywood crap like this turd by Peter Hyams. <laughs> Did Tom Hanks write that? <laughs> <laughs> and I do have just one little little tiny bonus. 
uh, who says, uh, I got a one star. He says, don't like this film except for the last minute. Who has porpoises in their swimming pools? Chlorine government allowable amount? So I, I just think you should worry about your chlorine a little bit. I know, Andy, as an Arizonan, you have a pool. You should worry first about chlorine before you seed it with dolphins. Hey, at least it's a saltwater pool that I Oh, have. good. Oh, thank goodness. So see. Yeah. <laughs> Perfect. I'm on the right path. Thanks, Amazon. I've been podcasting since 2006. In that time, I've tried countless hosting platforms. But in August 2022, we switched to Transistor to power all of our shows here at True Story FM. And it's been a game changer. I love the Transistor allows unlimited podcasts and storage without extra charges. We can publish so much content. And we do. If you want to start up a podcast, do yourself a favor and host your show on Transistor. With their one-click publishing, you can get your new show onto all the major podcast directories effortlessly. And their website builder lets you quickly build custom sites for each show. The detailed analytics are invaluable, too. You can access all kinds of listener data anytime. Oh, and the versatile players allow you to embed episodes anywhere to reach new listeners. Plus, the team behind Transistor is super responsive and keeps making the platform even better. After using countless hosting services over 15 plus years, Transistor has been hands down the best podcast partner for us. If you want a hosting platform to take all the worry out of getting your podcast out into the world, Go to thenextreel.com slash transistor and check it out. Support our show and support your own show by going to thenextreel.com slash transistor. Start growing your podcast today.